I think that perhaps the best way to introduce this meditation, well, this, and I would guess the following couple of reflections as well, is with a question. With the question, what did the cross accomplish? When we talk about the cross, we, of course, do not mean just one thing. And when we ask questions about it, we are not asking just one question, but multitudes of uh, questions, multiple questions, which are all related and which all come together in what theologians and pastors and priests mean or should mean anytime they talk about the cross. To ask then, what did the cross accomplish, is to simultaneously ask, what is the meaning of the cross? Or what is the meaning of Jesus' death? What is meant by the atonement, by redemption or um, ransom? What, what is the significance of the ascension? And what are we to make of Christ's promised return, the second coming? N.T. Wright suggests an illustration I think very helpful in this regard. He says words and expressions like the cross, atonement, sacrifice, forgiveness, and ascension are not things. They are stories. They are stories that can be folded up and, and packed together, like folding our clothes and packing them together in a suitcase for a trip. Or, changing his metaphor somewhat, Wright suggests that words like atonement, or I think even more uh, clearly expressions like the cross, are like a suitcase itself, into which the longer biblical story is folded up. I would suggest, then, that every word, every expression used in Scripture in reference to the um, use in reference to the meaning of Christ's crucifixion is like a suitcase full of carefully folded clothes in a in a large suitcase waiting to be unpacked. I can hardly do that here. Um, all I can do is to quickly note some of the items that might be in this large suitcase. <clears throat> I began by noting Marcus Borg's answer to the question, why was Jesus killed? Borg says Jesus was killed because he challenged the domination, the domination system of his day, that Jesus enraged the established powers of his world from the most conservative to the most liberal should be obvious to anyone from even um, a casual reading of the Gospels. However, in saying this, we must be careful to recognize that in the ancient world, there really was no distinction between uh, religion or spirituality and politics. That simply was not in their conceptual framework to divide things up like that. So my own first and simplest, uh, too simple, response to the question, what did the cross accomplish, 
what is the meaning of Jesus's death? What, what got Jesus killed? Why did Jesus die? Is that Jesus was killed because of all the things he said and did that angered and offended and challenged powerful established interest, just as Borg said. At a deeper, stranger, and more fundamental level, Jesus was killed because of the kind of person he was. The mother of all ironies is that historically, human societies are often unbelievably cruel and obtuse, killing those who are doing the most to help them and who are working the hardest to show them a way forward. Uh, we can think of Socrates, condemned by the, the people of his beloved city Athens, given the cup of hemlock, the uh, poison chalice to drink. And Gandhi, shot to death by his fellow Indians and Hindus, and Jesus himself. Uh, they all leave us puzzling over this strange quirk, not only of individuals, but of societies to do everything they can to destroy the wisest and the best among us. However, it is going a little far and it's just a little too simplistic to claim that Jesus was killed because he was the first century equivalent of a 20th or 21st century social activist, or a revolutionary advocating the overthrow of, of Rome and its puppet, puppet uh, collaborators. <clears throat> Certainly, neither the Jewish council nor Pilate thought Jesus to be a revolutionary in any conventional sense. My, my kingdom, Jesus said to Pilate, is not of this world. The twelve disciples, uh, those closest to Jesus, included a publican or tax collector, Matthew, whom we can safely assume was um, something of a law and order conservative, and Judas Iscariot, apparently a member of the Zealots, who were radical and frequently violent revolutionaries. So for Jesus to put two such political adversaries together in his inner circle suggests that Jesus was not thinking on the same level most of us are, and that to portray him as doing so is, as I say, rather simplistic. As for the further question of, did Jesus die for our sins? I think the answer has to be, contrary to a number of very popular and successful religion writers like Marcus Borg, and whether it turns us off to Christianity or not, whether it is a teaching that pleases us or not, um, whether we want Christianity to say this or not, or we prefer something else or not, that is certainly what the New Testament itself says. For anyone inclined to dismiss the doctrine of the atonement as rooted in biblical teaching, the belief that Jesus died for our sins, I would suggest reading the atonement, the origins of the doctrine in the New Testament 
by Martin Engel, H-E-N-G-E-L, who is not simply a popular author, but one of the uh, one of the truly great biblical scholars of the 20th century. Hingle was professor of New Testament and early Judaism at the prestigious University of Tübingen in Germany. His book on the atonement is thorough and scholarly, but I think also intelligible to the serious lay reader. I, I would also suggest what did the cross accomplish? A conversation about the atonement by N.T. Wright, Simon Gathercole, that's G-A-T-H-E-R-C-O-L-E, and Robert B. Stewart. At the trial of Jesus, Pilate is faced with a dilemma. On the one hand, apparently because of his contempt for his Jewish subjects, Pilate does not want to do what they want by crucifying Jesus. But on the other hand, he's afraid of what will happen to his career and maybe uh, to him if the Emperor Tiberius hears he has released an enemy and an insurrectionist. In fact, those determined to crucify Jesus shout their intention to make this very accusation if, if Pilate does not comply with their wishes. If, <laughs> which is if Pilate does not comply with their wishes. If you let this man go, the crowd yells, you are no friend of Caesar's, meaning if you let Jesus go, you are a traitor, an enemy of Caesar, rather than a loyal ally. Pilate recognized that if Jesus were a messiah, he was certainly a very different sort of Messiah than the sort of military leader and revolutionary the people were hoping for, and was therefore innocent of the charge of sedition. But Pilate could not afford to be accused of disloyalty to Caesar. When Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? He is not therefore asking a serious philosophical question, Rather, with bitter cynicism, he's saying something like, Jesus, it is perfectly clear to me that you are completely innocent of the charge of insurrection. But that truth doesn't really matter much, because I'm going to kill you anyway. I'm going to execute you today for no other reason than that it's politically expedient for me to do so. Tell me, Jesus, since when does truth have anything to do with reality? For Pilate, at least on this day, selfish ambition, raw power, and cynical political games took precedence over truth and justice. Under Roman law, only the governor of a province, in this case Pilate, could impose the death penalty. That Jesus, had, that Jesus had offended Hebrew religious sensibilities would, would not do. Uh, those charges would have meant nothing to Pilate, although they were important to the Sanhedrin. 
The religious establishment in Jerusalem, therefore, needed to accuse Jesus of a crime that would warrant the death penalty under Roman law. <clears throat> and so they, and so, uh, uh, they accuse Jesus of treason, of declaring himself a king in opposition to Caesar, the Roman emperor. It's not that they really believe this or that it was even all that important to them, but it was necessary to make that claim if they were going to legally see Jesus dead and out of their way. Their underlying motives are probably shown with the most clarity in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, which says this, The Pharisees and high priests called a meeting of the Jewish ruling body. What do we do now, they asked. This man, Jesus, keeps on doing things, creating God signs. If we let him go on, pretty soon everyone will be, be believing in him, and the Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we have left. Then one of them, it was Caiaphas, the designated high priest that year, spoke up. Don't you know anything? Can't you see that it is best if one man dies for the people rather than for the whole nation to be destroyed? Their fearful conclusion, well before this awful night, was that Jesus was a false prophet, a false messiah, who was leading Israel astray. Furthermore, they feared that Jesus, with his growing popularity among the common people, was likely to participate and uh, precipitate a, a national catastrophe. As far as they were concerned, there were only two choices. Either kill Jesus or place the temple and the whole nation in jeopardy. It was not a difficult decision. Jesus had to die. This meeting seems to have given rise to the charge made before Pilate. We found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. The Romans, it should be noted, destroyed whole towns and cities if they didn't um, get their taxes. And saying that he himself is a messiah, a king, a claim which, if true, the Romans always responded to with ruthless brutality because it again was a challenge to Caesar. Since Jesus did regard himself in some way as the Messiah, Jesus, they feared, might become the center of revolutionary violence, calling down the wrath of the Romans on the temple on the nation, and not to mention their own positions of status, power, and wealth. They saw Jesus' cleansing of the temple, his driving out the buyers and sellers and money changers who had turned the temple into a house of commerce rather than prayer, as an attack against their theocratic nation, what little power and autonomy it had left, threatening the the presence of God with the people with them, and again, threatening their own personal, political, financial, 
and social status. In the late night uh, hearing that occurred before Caiaphas, Jesus' fate is sealed when he not only confesses to the charge that he claims to be the Messiah, but does so in such a way that the charge of blasphemy can be added. You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, he says. For those gathered that night to decide whether Jesus should live or die, uh, that was a blasphemous claim that infuriated them. It was the sort of thing that wouldn't be of much interest to Pilate, but would justify their actions with the common people who followed Jesus, and it would satisfy their own conscience. Jesus' words were considered blasphemous because to, cl to claim that they would see him coming at the right hand of power and riding on the clouds was to say that they would see him come in divine majesty. Although I don't think Bohr takes it far enough or deep enough. Um, not far enough or deep enough spiritually. He is certainly correct when he says that what God Jesus killed was his passion. His passion for God and his passion for the kingdom of God. It seems pretty clear that Jesus believed in some inexplicable way that he had been chosen by God to be the representative person of Israel, to be Israel, and that somehow he would take upon himself, could assume the pain, the disease, the anguish, the afflictions of mind and body and spirit, the sins of the people, and by assuming or absorbing them, heal and transmute them. This is the point of Jesus' touching the skin of lepers, the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, a woman hemorrhaging blood. It's the point of his eating with sinners, the outcasts, the despised, the rejected, and the unwanted, bringing healing and transformation without being infected, overcome, or damaged in any way himself. So Jesus invites himself to dinner in the home of Zacchaeus, you remember, who and multiple senses of the word, deals in dirty money, is hated as a Roman collaborator, and is a sinner, a non-observant Jew. At some point in the evening, Zacchaeus announces, Master, I am going to give half my income to the poor, and I will pay back four times what I have cheated people out of. Zacchaeus' neighbors are indignant and complain that Jesus has no business eating with this crook, this oppressor. But when it's all over, when the evening is finished, Zacchaeus has been restored as, quote, a son of Abraham. And Jesus has not been contaminated, harmed, or diminished in any way. And for Zacchaeus, it is the day of his salvation. The, the day he enters a larger, more spacious, more glorious, more gracious, more truly human life. What we can say then is that in the end, Jesus took upon himself the divine judgment pronounced on Israel 
believing that Israel's nationalistic ambitions would lead her to destruction at the hands of the Romans. He took upon himself the fate of the whole nation and suffered the brutal death of those who dared rebel against Rome, even though he himself was innocent. He died with a rebel on either side. They are, those two rebels, in fact, the last two of the many outcasts with whom Jesus connects. And at least one of them discovers that connection is the entrance into the heavenly kingdom. N.T. Wright explains it like this. He writes, On the cross it becomes clear Israel's real problem is not merely external, but internal also. Jesus shares the ultimate form of her social and political predicament and hence reveals in his last great symbolic act that the nationalist rebellion, whose bloody logical outcome he now shared, was something for which Israel was being judged by God and from which she needed to be saved by him. The death Jesus dies is Israel's death. And the pattern of healings and welcomes, which make up so much of the gospel narratives, like Zacchaeus, indicates the motive. Jesus dies Israel's death in order that she may not die it. That Israel may find herself brought through judgment into the true kingdom, the real kingdom kingdom. I think Wright's picture makes Jesus' death for his people, his death as an offering for sin, understandable in a, oh, in a natural way, in an organic way, while at the same time allowing us to find a still deeper and higher and wider and more encompassing meaning to it all. So on the surface, when seen philosophically and politically or religiously, Jesus' death on the cross makes sense. Yet at a deeper, unseen spiritual level, it is fraught with infinite possibilities and implications for personal forgiveness, for personal transformation, for the enormous power of the cross to work uh, the work of faith, hope, and sacrificial love in us, around us, and through us. I will continue this reflection on what the cross accomplished in uh, the next episode, episode 33. But this should be enough to unpack for right now. <laughs> 